right, Carolyn, you ready? All right. We are going to play around with the mic a little bit, so y'all can keep talking. I'll, I'll holler at you when it's officially time. Testing, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Testing, testing, so we're good? All right. All right, well, I thought that would take a little longer. It didn't, so we'll go ahead and get started. And some of your questions in the application day five are going to line up with the discussion questions at the end of this particular lesson. So you'll kind of be able to kill two birds with one stone there. Um, excited to be back with you guys. And yes, Isaiah is a challenge. And you know what I'm realizing the older I get is there's kind of this very well-intentioned, very well-intentioned. And I, there's nobody that loves the message of just read your Bible. Don't worry about it. Don't think too hard. Just get in your Bible. Just read your Bible more than anybody. Like, I love that. That, that is important. But in, I think, the effort to get people to just read their Bible, there's kind of been this, again, it's not an intentional lie, but this, like, subtle message that it's going to be fine. It's going to be easy. Just open your Bible and start reading, and you have the Holy Spirit, so it's just going to make perfect sense to you. And, you know, it's, it's not going to be a struggle. And, and that's just not... I mean, we do have a Holy Spirit, and he does illuminate God's word, but I think that whole doctrine of illumination and the whole idea of what, what the Bible is, it is an ancient text. It spans such a massive amount of time, and the historical context is very much lost on us, and there are just certain dynamics at play that it just takes so much time to learn and, and to get it down. I mean, a lifetime, we're talking a lifetime to really get to a place where you're like, all right, yeah, I've got a pretty firm grasp on Genesis to Revelation, what's going on. Um, and, then, and then once you kind of get a firm grasp of that, then a lot of things can kind of start coming alive. But this idea that you're just supposed to, like, open your Bible and point and get this amazing, like, life-altering, like, soul, you know, refreshing word from God, um, that's just, I don't know. In my experience, that's not how it works. Those refreshing soul words from God happen, but just the day-to-day, -day, it's just kind of like we just got to chip away at this thing. And over time, we come to think um, biblically. We, de we develop a biblical intuition, and, and, and so that's what we're doing here. And so I, I think this this. I don't, and I don't know, it might be worldwide. I know I only am in a, an American context, but I know in the American church, this idea that the, it's the Bible and we have the Holy Spirit, so it should just be easy. Man, I think that's just like such a bad expectation, and it's led to a lot of disappointment. And I think a lot of people thinking there's something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just, this is a hard book. Um, and Isaiah in particular, just because it is, it's long, and, and again, just the genre that it is, it's, it's Hebrew poetry. And even the prose we have, is a, it's a rhythmic prose. So he is selecting words so intentionally and so carefully. I don't think he's writing how he talked necessarily, and so that just makes it a challenge. So if you're feeling that, yay, you're doing something right. You're not doing something wrong. You're doing something right. All right, and so that's one thing I want to just continually remind you of. If this is a struggle, if it's hard, yay, yay, it's, it's going to be. It's hard for me, too. Like, I am in this with you, okay? So, but it is so fun. It's so fun to, to learn, and um, yeah. So, with that said, let me open in a word of prayer, and then we will dive in. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself just reflecting this week on the simplicity of just foundationally, I think the most important aspect of your character is that you are a God who makes yourself known to us. You didn't have to do that. Um, you could have left us completely in the dark about who you are and how you work and what your plan for this world is and what your plan for our lives are, 
but you have chosen to give us this sacred text we call the Bible. You've chosen to preserve it for us all these years, um, and you have chosen to grant us your spirit that we might, through uh, study and meditation on these words, um, be conformed more and more to the person, uh, the character of Christ. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we walk through this um, passage today, that your spirit would do that work of illuminating your word, of allowing us to see what it is you've revealed about yourself and about your will and about your plans, so that we might walk in repentance and faith, just as you called the people of Israel over and over again, return and rest, return and rest that we too would um, be, be women who, who walk in that kind of repentance and faith, resting in who you are, continually turning away from our sin <coughs> to, um, to just the, the, the reality of all that you offer us in Christ. And so I pray that that message would be loud and clear, and we just love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Choke on my joke. I'm not even sick. I just got a little thing right there. Okay, so let's go ahead and um, jump in. I'm going to open with a story, and this is something I haven't thought about in so long, but it came to my mind as I was working on this message. When I was in elementary school, so I actually turned 41 this weekend, so this is a long time ago. When I was in elementary school, I had a neighbor named Darcy, and in Darcy's backyard, there was a clearing of land tucked behind some trees that was screaming for a clubhouse to be built. And I don't know of any elementary school kid who hasn't seen some movie or some show where a bunch of kids are hanging out in a clubhouse and you think, oh, I'd really love to have a clubhouse, right? So this is kind of the ultimate elementary school kid dream. So we decided we would build one in that clearing. And my memories are pretty fuzzy, but I do have vivid memories of us gathering random random scraps of wood. Um, we kind of, there was a lot of construction still going on around our house at the time. So it, just any random scrap, we probably stole things we weren't supposed to, but we, we didn't mean to. Um, but we'd scavenge our garages for nails and tools that our dads would hopefully not be too mad that we took and carried into this, you know, clearing in her backyard. Well, this went on for some time. I remember other kids, she had some brothers, and they would kind of join in on the construction the construction efforts, and I wish I could tell you that we ended up with an adorable little clubhouse with a no boys allowed sign on the front door, uh, but in reality, we ended up with a structure that wouldn't even qualify as a shelter of any kind, and in spite of all of those Bob Vila shows that I watched as a kid, um, it toppled to the ground the very first time her brother kicked it, because that's what brothers do, right? And he didn't even have to kick it very hard. Like it was, it was a pretty, it was a pretty bad, um, pretty bad structure. Didn't matter how long or hard we worked, because when all was said and done, we were uh, utterly incapable of building things with wood and nails. We had no idea what we were doing, and that became very, very clear <laughs> as our construction project continued. Well, throughout the storyline of the Bible, we see God revealing Himself to be the perfect all-sufficient, faithful shelter for his people. From the very beginning to the very end. And throughout the storyline of the Bible, we also see humans choosing to make shelters of their own. Expending great effort to gather all the right materials and put them together in such a way that they can achieve salvation for themselves. And as you can imagine, there are no shortage of stories that turn out a lot like the one I just told. Because man-made shelters never stand. And any refuge other than the God of the Bible eventually proves insufficient. And sometimes it takes a really long time for that to happen, but it always happens. And this is the reality that Isaiah puts on display for us in today's passages so, so clearly. Um, the homework covered chapters 28 through 35. We are only going to walk through one chapter today. It's going to be chapter 30. And I'm not 
sad about it. Usually it makes me really sad not to cover all of the chapters. But chapter 30 is so representative of the whole section. Every, everything, all the major themes that are in chapters 28 through 35 are kind of contained in chapter 30. So it's a nice snapshot of the whole section. It makes, um, makes our time together a little more, little more manageable. So let's go ahead and dig in. Isaiah chapter 30 is where we're going to focus our attention. Verse 1 says, woe to the rebellious children. This is the Lord's declaration. By the way, I've been asked multiple times what translation I'm reading from. I'm reading from the CSB. I made a transition from the NASB last year. I'm loving the CSB translation. So um, there's so many great translations, but this one is just, and as I'm reading, and I read a lot of uh, commentaries from Hebrew scholars, so they're basing their exposition on the actual Hebrew text, and so they'll make little notes that say, well, the Hebrew actually reads more like blah 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 and I'll look at my CSB, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of what it says, so it's seeming to check out pretty well with um, that, so anyway, just, that was like, why am I using time talking about this translation? I really just wanted to tell you which one I was using. All right, woe to the rebellious children, this is the Lord's declaration, they carry out a plan, but not mine. They make an alliance, but against my will, piling sin on top of sin. Without asking my advice, they set out to go down to Egypt in order to seek shelter under Pharaoh's protection and take refuge in Egypt's shadow. But Pharaoh's protection will become your shame and refuge in Egypt's shadow your humiliation. For though his princes are at Zoan, and his messengers reach as far as Hanes, or Hanes, I don't know exactly how to say that word, everyone will be ashamed because of a people who can't help. They are of no benefit, they are no help, they are good for nothing but shame and disgrace. A pronouncement concerning the animals of the Negev, through a land of trouble and distress, a lioness and a lion, of of lioness and lion, of viper and flying serpent, they carried their wealth, they being Israel. It's a picture of Israel carrying their wealth on backs of donkeys um, and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who will not help them. So they're taking all their treasures to try to buy the help of Egypt. They're going to align themselves with Egypt. Verse 7, Egypt's help is completely worthless. Therefore, I call her Rahab who just sits. All right, we'll stop there. Now, this chapter starts with the word woe. You saw a lot of woes in your reading this week. This section, uh, this is actually the fourth of six woes that show up in chapters 28 through 35. This section is called the woes of Isaiah. So it's kind of, we have these poems within a poem, and this would be one whole section um, of the book of Isaiah. Now here, the woe is, is, is directed specifically toward the rebellious children. And if you'll remember, this is how Isaiah started the entire book. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, uh, let's see, I'll read it to you. Verse 2, it says, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And then, of course, he goes on to describe the specific way in which the people have rebelled. So here we have a very specific, another very specific example of how they are continuing in their rebellion against the Lord. Um, verse 1, this is the Lord's declaration. This is how they're rebelling. They are carrying out a plan, but it's not my plan. They've made an alliance, but it's against my will. Without asking my advice, they have set out to go down to Egypt to seek shelter under Pharaoh's protection, and take refuge in Egypt's shadow. Now, we have talked a lot about, we've got our two big enemies. We've got Assyria, and then later on, we've got Babylon, right? So right now, Assyria is the big threat. And we've talked about how the threat of Assyria made it really, really important for, um, at least from a human perspective, for these smaller nations like Judah to make alliances with other nations kind of team up, that was the only way, again, from a human perspective, you would have the power to defeat um, a massive world threat like the Assyrians. Now, what we need to understand to make this make sense is that if you take 
God's clear promise to preserve Jerusalem out of the equation. We saw a few weeks ago, he made it really clear to Ahaz. Look, I've made a promise to you. Jerusalem's not going down. It's not going down. It will not happen. I will not let it happen. So God had reminded them, I'm going to preserve Jerusalem against the Assyrians. But if you take that promise out of the equation, making an alliance with a nation like Egypt made all the sense in the world. So again, it's really easy for us in retrospect to look at a chapter like this and say, what idiots, I can't believe they did that. But if you had been in their shoes at this time, it actually made quite a bit of plans go, it seemed to check all the boxes. Now, the thing is, like I said, God has promised to protect Jerusalem, and he has made it very clear that his people must not devise their own plans to save themselves, but rather rest in the salvation that he has promised. If you skip ahead, uh, verse 15, he says this very clearly. And this is a message he has told them over and over and over again. Verse 15, it says, The Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, You will be delivered by turning to Egypt? No. You will be delivered by returning to the Lord and resting in him. Your strength will lie. And this is so counterintuitive. Not in taking up weapons, not in taking up arms, not in forming alliances with mighty nations, but your strength will lie in quiet confidence. And what's implied there is that would be quiet confidence in the Lord. This is the same thing that God had told Ahaz back in 7.4. Calm down. Be quiet. Right? Take care to do nothing. So if you put this in a gospel framework, what we see is that God has promised them salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Saying, you just rest. You just be quiet. You just stop. You let me do it. All you, just trust me. But they have decided to seek salvation from Assyria through their own human efforts. Because let's be honest, it feels way better to do something than to do nothing. The other day I was sitting, and I'm sure this has happened to you before too, I was sitting in a major traffic jam. I only needed to go about, I don't know, like a quarter or half a mile more to get to the destination I was wanting to get to. Um, I knew in my head it would be faster to just stay in the traffic. Just stay in the traffic, see it through, you're going to get there. But you know what I did, right? I started to get restless started to get irritated that I was sitting in the traffic, and so I made a U-turn. I went miles out of my way. I got there later than I would have, but I was not even sad about it. I wasn't. I was like, that felt so much better. It feels better to move than it does to wait, right? And that is true spiritually as well. And that's what makes the gospel so frustrating to people. That's what makes it such a scandal, really, if you think about it. We want to be the active party in whatever we do, including our salvation. And, and God comes to us in his word. He says, no, that's just not how it works. That's not how it works. You've got to let me save you. And that is such a core, key theme throughout um, the book of Isaiah. Now, notice the words he uses in verse 2 to, for, for Egypt. He used the word shelter and refuge. So they were turning to Egypt for shelter and refuge. Now, if you have spent much time in the book of Psalms, you know that this metaphor of a refuge is a favorite metaphor, um, particularly that the psalmists use in their description of God. You see it elsewhere in Scripture, too, but it really stands out in the book of Psalms. Let me throw out a few examples for you. Uh, Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 31.19 says, How great is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Psalm 61.3, you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against my enemy. And Psalm 144.2, the Lord is my faithful love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge. 
And the reason you see this metaphor over and over and over is because it is an accurate reflection of who God has proven himself to be throughout the whole of Israel's history. He has always been their faithful refuge. But, and this is a big but, there is something in our human minds that shrinks past faithfulness and magnifies present fears. Anybody feel that? (laughs) Yeah, it's just something we do. We shrink past faithfulness and we magnify present fears. I talked a few weeks ago about how our circumstances are always talking. They're always proclaiming a message. It's always very different than the message we hear God proclaiming through his word. Same, Same idea, right? And make no mistake, when we are busy magnifying our present fears, there will always, and I'm, I'm, I, I thought about this, I'm like, because I try to be really careful with the words always and never, but I would say with confidence, when I am magnifying my present fears, there will always be a more obvious, more immediate, and more rational refuge than the Lord. There's going to be something I can run to that's going to make a lot more sense. And for the leaders of Judah, it was Egypt. That made the most sense. That was the easiest, most direct path toward security. Or was it? That's what they thought. Let's read on and see how it it actually worked out. All right, so let's pick up in verse... Verse 3, the Pharaoh's protection will become your shame and refuge in Egypt's shadow your humiliation. Now, is there anything in their history that could have, like, hinted that this was maybe not the best idea to seek refuge in Egypt? Again, you don't even have to read the Bible for this. Just see the Disney movie. Have you seen the Disney movie? Right? Like, Egypt was not a great place in their, in, historically, for Israel, all right, and yet they're wanting to align themselves. So verse 4 says, For though his princes are at Zoan, his messengers reach as far as Hanes, this is here to remind us that Egypt looked really strong. Again, these aren't a bunch of bozos, a bunch of idiots. Like, from all human powers of observation, Egypt was doing really well, and they looked very strong, and so... That is why they seemed as though it might be a good, a good opportunity to align ourselves. Um, but then he says that the truth is, verse 5, everyone will be ashamed because of a people who can't help. They are of no benefit. They are of no help. They are good for nothing but shame and disgrace. And then we have this pronouncement on the animals. And in verse 7, Egypt's help is completely worthless. Therefore, I call her Rahab to just get it. So again, and I love that Isaiah does this. He acknowledges that on the surface, Egypt appeared to be a very strong, reliable ally. Alternative refuges always do. They always do. We need to know that destructive alliances never start out looking destructive, do they? And all the means of self-salvation that humans have ever come up with, and there's, I mean, we can make a long list. It could be uh, social justice, philanthropy, religious practice, career success, sexual expression, political power, celebrity, moral achievements. All of those things look and feel really good. Some of them actually are really good. But what they offer, if you're looking to them as a means of salvation, is only temporary. They cannot offer you any measure of sustainable satisfaction or any true salvation. And so we need to, as a people of God, who know God as our refuge, who have heard the promise of God just in in returning and rest is your salvation. We need to train ourselves to see what isn't obvious. We need to always be asking for discernment and wisdom, knowing that we are highly vulnerable to seeking refuge in things that are no refuge at all. And so just know that. The false refuges, I wish that all of the the false refuges had a label on them that said bad. 
or this isn't going to work for you. But they, they don't. They are packaged really well, or we wouldn't run to them, right? And so we need to constantly be training ourselves, and that's why this biblical intuition that we're here working on is so important. And we'd be able to see a refuge for what it is and be able to identify, okay, this makes a lot of sense from a human perspective, but does this make a lot of sense in light of what God has revealed about himself and about his kingdom? And, and that just takes practice, just retrain our thinking to have that kind of discernment, and it's something that we've got to ask the Lord to continually do for us. So let's go ahead and read into the next section, verse 8. It says, go, write it on a tablet in their presence and inscribe it on a scroll. It will be for the future forever and ever. I think this is interesting that Isaiah was given some insight by the Lord um, into the fact that his ministry was very significant and it would extend beyond his own time. Um, I'm not so sure he would understand his words as part of what we think of as the canon of scripture, but he definitely was given insight that his words had some kind of imperishable quality to them. They were going to last well beyond his time, and of course, here we are today studying them. Verse 9, speaking again of the people, they are rebellious people. Notice how many times that word rebellious is used. Deceptive children, children who do not want to listen to the Lord's instructions. Any of you who have had or have very small children, um, that should resonate quite deeply. They do not want to listen. They do not want to listen. Verse 10, they say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy the truth to us. Tell us flattering things. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Leave the pathway. Rid us of the Holy One of Israel. Well, these verses make it really clear that the alliance with Egypt, as all false alliances are, was just a symptom of a much bigger problem. And that bigger problem was their refusal to listen to God. And I want you to notice, they didn't want the prophets to stop speaking. They wanted the prophets to stop speaking the truth. Verse 10, they tell us, Tell us things. Prophesy. Keep telling. Keep prophesying. But I want you to tell us flattering things, and I want you to prophesy illusions. So they don't want it to stop. They simply want it to be void of anything that would expose their sin and call them to repentance and faith. And I have a hunch they kind of would have loved a lot of the preaching in the American church today. Right? Five ways to get out of debt. Ten tips to a successful marriage. How to live your best life. How to slay your giants. How to reach your promised land, which of course is the fulfillment of your own personal dreams and ambitions. It's a complete hijacking of these beautiful stories of God's faithfulness to fit our own desires and preferences and ambitions. And unfortunately, those kinds of messages, they they draw a crowd, which is why they're so appealing. They do not form an actual real church. Because a church is made up of people who walk in repentance and faith as they love and serve King Jesus. Look at verse 11 again. Get out of the way. Leave the pathway. This is such strong language. Rid us of the Holy One of Israel. Now, what's important for us to understand is that they weren't saying stuff like this out loud. Remember, their religious life, we've already established, had continued business as usual. So people sitting in a church pew don't say things like, rid us of God. Get him out of the way. We don't want him anymore. Nobody says that. Nobody says that. Now, take a look at how Isaiah describes this back in, uh, turn back to chapter 29, verse 13. So in verse 11, he says, for you, the entire vision will be like the words of a sealed document. If it is given to the one who can read and he is asked to read it, he will say, I can't read it because it's sealed. And if the document is given to the one who cannot read and he is asked to read it, he'll say, oh, I can't read. What he's saying is there's no desire to read. 
if you get a word, a scroll from the God of heaven, you figure out how to read it, right? And, and the one guy's like, eh, it's all rolled up. And the other's like, oh, sorry, can't read, right? So this is just their, their overall posture toward the word of God. It's like, eh, eh, right? <coughs> Verse 13, and the Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches, and they honor me with their lip service. What does that indicate? Their words were pretty good. They were saying all the right things, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. Of course, we know that Isaiah was speaking on. Thank you. So Isaiah was speaking to the religious elite. So they would never have said, never, out loud, rid us of the Holy One of Israel. But when you have shut your ears to anything that would call you to reflect his holiness through repentance, and surrender, when you have shut your ears to every hard message, when you have decided that you don't want God in your business, you might as well have said it because that's what you're calling for. You're saying, rid me of the Holy One of Israel. Just get him out of here. And in his place, would you please put a celebrity pastor or would you put, you know, some other, like, more palatable message, someone else I can look to as a spiritual leader that's not going to, like, get in my junk, right? That's what we want. And it's pretty scary to think that we can keep doing all the God things without realizing we've completely shut him out. And what's left is ritual, tradition, moralism, just going through the motions, and that's what's happened here, and it can happen to any single one of us. And it's terrifying because you don't know it's happening, because your life is very moral, and your life is very good, and your life is still very spiritual, and you're still going to church, and you're still doing all the things. But do you, what is your posture toward the word of God? Like the real word of God, <laughs> in its entirety, even the hard stuff, what is your posture toward that? Are you like, eh, it's all rolled up? Or, eh, sorry, can't read. That was the root of their problem. And this whole Egypt thing was just a symptom of that. It was just a symptom of that. Now, verse 11 ends with the people asking to be rid of the Holy One of Israel. Interestingly, verse 12 opens with the immediate repetition of the title the Holy One of Israel. It's like God is saying, sorry, but you can't get rid of me that easily. <laughs> Verse 12. Therefore, the Holy One of Israel says, because you have rejected this message and have trusted in the oppression and deceit and have depended on them, this iniquity of yours will be like a crumbling gap a bulge in a high wall whose collapse will come in an instant, suddenly. Its collapse will be like the shattering of a potter's jar, crushed to pieces so that not even a fragment of pottery will be found among its shattering remains. No fragment large enough to take fire from the hearth or scoop water from the cistern. For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, you will be delivered by returning and resting. Your strength will lie in quiet confidence. But you are not willing. You say, no, we will escape on horses. And therefore, you will escape. And we will ride on fast horses. But those who pursue you are going to be faster. 1,000 will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will flee until you remain like a solitary pole on a mountain or a banner on a hill. So here we have two illustrations of what happens when God's people choose to reject his word and 
create their own shelter, their own refuge. Number one, a wall collapsing under its own weight. That's the first illustration. Very vivid <laughs> illustration. Number two, a pot smashed, not by its own weight, but this time it's smashed by an external force. And what those two illustrations have in common is that in both cases, the damage is massive and it's irreparable. There's nothing left. And what really got me from this section is the simplicity of the message they choose to reject. I mean, this is the message they hate. Let me read it to you again. You will be delivered by returning and resting. Your strength will lie in quiet confidence. Now, that returning, that's repentance language. So there's something that has to be forsaken in order to return to the Lord. But what do you get from the returning? Rest and quiet confidence. Like it just says it's a, it's a beautiful invitation. And it made me think of when my boys were, when I, had, when I had babies, right, when they were infants. And my husband would say, I've got the baby. You go and rest. Go relax. And I'm embarrassed by how many times I rejected his offer. Because as exhausted as I was, control seemed better than sleep. Right? And over and over again, I scorned my husband's generous invitation to rest because I just couldn't bring myself to hand the baby over and trust him to handle it. And I did so to my detriment. I needed that rest. And there was no way I was going to get it on my own. And that is a tiny, <laughs> tiny, itty bitty taste of what is pictured here. We are supposed to see the utter folly of self-reliance. Isaiah wants us to walk away from this passage completely shocked that they would refuse such a beautiful, simple invitation to turn from their life and rest in God. And he would also want us to walk away with the realization that we are so capable of doing the same thing. Because we love control. We love to have our hands in it. Again, I'd rather drive five miles out of my way as long as I'm doing something. And verse 17 ends on a very ominous note of destruction. I mean, this is not good news. And yet, from what you know of Isaiah's writing style, do you think he's going to leave us wallowing in the doom for very long? No, of course not. He's the master of surprising hope, right? I am, at first, I've got to be honest with you, his writing style drove me crazy. I'm like, let's do the destruction, and then let's do the hope. And then we'll do the whole new heaven and new earth thing. Can we please follow an outline here? Because <laughs> that's the way I think, right? It is very hard to plan a lesson when it's like, Doom, hope, doom, hope. And I'm like, ah, my brain's just going crazy. But I tell you what, I have come to, first of all, now I see what he's doing. It's very effective. It's very powerful. And I've come to just love the fact that he has us sitting in the filth and the muck and the doom and the destruction and the shattering and all that this people have caused themselves. And it's like, oh, but don't forget, these are God's people. And he's made a promise to them, and he's going to keep it. And it's like he always catches us by surprise and reminds us of the faithfulness of God. And that is going to happen here as well. Look at verse 18. Therefore, 
and what comes after this therefore is not what you would expect. He's described the people's basic idolatry in turning to Egypt. He says, and therefore, you're expecting more doom, but it's not what we get. Therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a just God, and all who wait patiently for him are happy. And it just gets better and better. For the people will live on Zion in Jerusalem. You will never weep again. He will show favor to you at the sound of your outcry. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. The Lord will give you meager bread and water during oppression, but your teacher will not hide any longer. And that's a capital T teacher. This is referring to the Lord. Your eyes will see your teacher, and whenever you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Then you will defile your silver-plated idols and your gold-plated images. You will throw them away like minstrel cloths and call them filth. Then he will send rain for your seed that you have sown in the ground, and the food, the produce of the ground will be rich and plentiful. On that day, your cattle will graze in open pastures. The oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat salted fodder scattered with winnowing shovel and fork. Streams will flow with wa- streams flowing with water will be on every high mountain and every raised hill on the day of great slaughter when the towers fall. So there were high mountains were known they had towers to the gods. They were they were centers of of, of idol worship essentially. And now those towers are going to fall and they're with these rich flowing streams of water. Verse 26, the moonlight will be as bright as the sunlight and the sunlight will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days on the day that the Lord bandages his people's injuries and heals the wounds of the afflicted. So judge and punish he must, but forsake his purpose for his people he will not. And if that is not just the consistent message of Isaiah, I don't know what is. Judge and punish, he must, but forsake his purpose for his people, he will not. And in true Isaiah fashion, he is tying the events of his day into the events of the day when God's redemption plan is consummated in the second coming of Christ. Let me remind you, For the writers of the Old Testament, especially these prophets, those events are part of that one big mountain range, right? And it doesn't seem to bother them at all that the um, Assyrian invasion mountain is like hundreds of miles from the second coming of Christ mountain. It It doesn't bother them. And they'll be talking about one in one line, and then it's like it... They're like, which one is he talking about? And it's like both. Like they, they have both in view. They're part of this one massive mountain range of God's, of God's plan. They make up one landscape. And so that's kind of what's happening here. You're like, are we still talking about Assyria? Actually, he's now looking way ahead to, to the ultimate, the ultimate restoration that God is going to bring. Now, the message, Eugene Peterson's message, paraphrase, which I, you never want to, you need to see it as like a commentary. It's never need to be your main text that you read from, but it is such a one of my favorite um, resources for uh, for really getting the the gist of, of what's what's um, going on here. But the message paraphrase begins verse eight with the phrase or verse eighteen with the phrase, "But God's not finished." But God's not. And when I read that, and I chewed on that for a while, I was struck by what a fitting title that could be for this entire study. I mean, over and over again, that has been the message of Isaiah. The people of Judah and Israel are corrupt and rebellious. They will be judged. Their land will be devastated. But God's not finished. And then beyond Judah and Israel, to to the nations of the world. We saw all of those pronouncements against all the nations. We saw that they are corrupt and rebellious as well. 
And they too will be judged, and their land will be devastated. But even with the nations, there is hope. God's not finished. And if you're like me, you look at the state of our world, and even worse, even even more depressing, you look at the state of the, we'll say the American church. I'm not real privy to the global church context, but the state of the American church. And you need someone to stand here today and remind you, but God's not finished. Right? I mean, I just like, this week just stopped. I thought, that is a word for God's people in this day, looking at all the things going on. But God's not finished. Not once in the history of mankind has human faithlessness ever hindered God's faithfulness. And ladies, we are not going to be the first exception. We're not. What a beautiful picture of the heart of God we have here in verse 18. A God who is waiting to show mercy. He is rising up to show compassion. I had you look at the, the, the parable of the prodigal son and the father. Who, who, he's waiting to show compassion on his rebellious son. He's, he, he literally rises up and runs. He runs to show, to show compassion. I'll tell you, anyone who implies that the God of the Old Testament is all fire and brimstone has never once read the Old Testament. Like, that's one thing you can conclude about that person. <laughs> you just haven't ever read it because we have beautiful pictures like this all over, all over the place. Well, let's make a little list of what's in store for God's people on the other side of judgment um, according to what we have in these verses I read, 19 through, let's see, 26. All right, so first of all, he says, you will never weep again. And we've seen this before. We're going to see it again. Um, so sadness and sorrow are done away with. This is clear echoes of Revelation 21 and 22, right? Every tear will be wiped away from your eyes. Another thing that's going to happen, he starts talking about this teacher. Your eyes will see your teacher. And this teacher is going to personally guide their every step. And I don't know about you, and I know the Holy Spirit does this for us, but, like, to have an actual physical presence of a teacher, the capital T teacher, behind you saying, this is the way, walk. We, are, we have a foretaste of that now in, in the, the guiding work of the Holy Spirit, and it will come to its fullest expression in the new heaven and the new earth, where the presence of God is so unhindered, um, it's such a, a beautiful picture of the teacher that we have that we have there. The result of this, verse 22, they're going to see their idols for what they are. And this is the human condition. This is the part of our biggest problem is we don't see our idols for what they are. Like they're wood and metal. They're just, you know, from, from a, an Old Testament standpoint, of course, the New Testament talks about the idols of our hearts. So we, we, we spiritualize that in our sense. But, I mean, for these People, their actual religious practice was these, like, actual little idols. It's like your kids' action figures, you know? And, like, thinking that those are actually powerful. They're actually gods. And God's constantly like, why would you ever think that? They can literally be burned and melt and fall down. <laughs> but that's the problem with the human heart. We don't see idols for what they are. We just don't. We don't. Whether it's the idols of our heart or actual statues, we are so deluded when it comes to the idols in our lives. And what a beautiful picture of, you know what, when the teacher is behind you and his presence is surrounding, guess what? You will finally and forever be able to see all the idols for what they are. Utterly worthless. And you will throw them out like rubbish. We have this reference to food being rich and plentiful, this metaphor of feasting, which I'm a foodie, so that always really speaks to me anytime I see that. You have these streams of water flowing from every mountain, um, which is a picture of feasting and abundance. I don't know if you've ever been um, hiking. I love hiking, like on a long hike, and your water bottle's getting low, and you're kind of like, mm, I really 
you need a spring. I need it. We need to come up on a spring. And when you do, like you put your water bottle in there, it's the best tasting water you've ever had in your life. Like that's what I was thinking when I read this. I was like, oh, those springs are everywhere. And the reference to animals, moonlight, sunlight indicates that all of creation will be set free from the curse of sin. You know, in Romans 8, Paul says all of creation is groaning. We feel the weight of the fall. Well, so does the earth. The earth does too. And it will also be set free. And, of course, I love the image at the end of the Lord bandaging and healing. And this is a gorgeous list all on its own, all on its own. But when you set it within the context of such blatant rebellion, it is remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable. The patience and mercy and grace of God is beyond calculation here. He is not doing this for a people with a clean record. He's doing it for people who have a history of rampant idolatry and extreme rebellion, but who, by grace through faith, are invited to enjoy his salvation, which they did absolutely nothing to earn. And I don't know about you, but I'm starting to see why Isaiah is called the Romans of the Old Testament. And it's just going to get better. Man, we're going to get to Isaiah 52 and 53. It's going to rock our world. So good. Let's go ahead and finish out the chapter, verse 18. Or, I'm sorry, verse 27. So in verses 18 through 26, Isaiah paints a picture of the ultimate faithfulness of God. He has a very eschatological or end-time focus in those verses. He zooms way out, and he's looking at that ultimate future for God's people. Well, that's way far away. And so in verses 27 through 33... He zooms back in, and he focuses on God's faithfulness in the more immediate future, which is going to be the destruction of the Assyrians. So he is going to defeat the ultimate enemy in an ultimate sense one day when Jesus comes back and the new heaven and the new earth is established. But there's these intermediate fulfillments of that, and one of the intermediate fulfillments for Israel is the destruction of the Assyrians, which we'll read about in detail in your homework next week. But he's going to talk about it here. Verse 27 says, Look, the name of the Lord is coming from far away, and his anger burning and heavy with smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent that rises to the neck. He comes to sift the nations in a sieve of destruction. These metaphors are just rolling one after the other, and to put a bridle on the jaws of the peoples to lead them astray. Your singing will be like that of the night of a holy festival, and your heart will rejoice like the one who walks to the music of a flute, going up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. Rock, true refuge, lots of refuge imagery here. And the Lord will make the splendor of his voice heard and reveal his arm striking with angry wrath and a flame of consuming fire, driving rain, a torrent, and hailstones. And Assyria will be shattered by Egypt? No. Assyria will be shattered by the voice of the Lord. And he will strike with a rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord brings down on him will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. And he will fight against him with brandished weapons. Indeed, Topheth has been ready for the king for a long time. Its funeral pyre is deep and wide with plenty of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of burning sulfur, kindles it. That word topheth in 33, it's a place, but the literal rendering is it's a disgraceful burning place. Little did the Assyrians know that their imperial march to Zion to destroy it was actually their funeral procession because God was going to destroy them. At the 11th hour, when it looks like all hope is lost, God is going to come through, and it's super exciting. And again, you get to read about that. Um, this next week. But here's what the leaders of Judah needed to know. Here's what they needed to know. They already had an ally. They already 
had a refuge. They already had a shelter. A strong, impenetrable, faithful, eternal, unfailing refuge. And so do we. And so do we. And there will always be a reason to not trust God. There will always be an alternative place to seek refuge. There will always be an opportunity to form an alliance with alternative saviors. There will always be a pathway to self-salvation. And that pathway of not trusting God will always, in the short run, feel easier. And it will feel more intuitive, and it will feel less demanding, and it will feel instantly pleasurable. And there will be no shortage of voices telling you that Egypt is the way to go. And here's what you say to those voices. And here's what we all need to remind ourselves of every single day. We already have an ally. We already have a savior. We already have a refuge. And he is more than enough. That is the message that Isaiah is hitting home in these chapters that we walk through this week. And as we move on into, we finally hit some narrative, actually, in chapter 36, which I think you'll find a little refreshing um, a little bit of poetry mixed in, but it's, it's a narrative. It's the story of, of God's last-minute, sudden salvation from Assyria, which once again is going to point us to that 11th hour, rather unexpected salvation that he is going to bring through his suffering servant, which is going to become the focus um, moving on. So just a beautiful, beautiful thing Isaiah is doing for us here. And um, I think we're getting better at it. I think we're getting better at this book as, as we move on. So I know I'm not as fumbling quite as much. <laughs> I am at least. Okay, well, that's all that matters, right? I hope I'm getting better at it. All right. Well, let me close this in a word of prayer. And then lots of great discussion questions today. I mean, this is just such an applicable, such an applicable lesson. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for this reminder. Um, I thank you for the word that you just have brought to mind again and again. But God's not done. You're not done. And I forget that. Because what's going on in my day, in my world, to me, feels very final. It feels very... Um, at the end of the story, and I have to remember there's this big, grand story that you have been writing from ages past, and you will continue to write for all eternity, and it is not done, and you are not done, and what a sweet reminder that your will, your, your plans can't fail, and that our hope and our salvation and our satisfaction lies not in expending a great deal of effort to make ourselves acceptable to you or to somehow earn your favor, but our hope lies in returning and resting, in repentance and faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to just bask in and, and love the simplicity of the invitation that we have. And as we are tempted to make the U-turn and drive miles and miles out of our way just so we can be busy, just so we can maintain control, just so we can expend some effort to make ourselves feel better, I pray that you would remind us of the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is done, not do. It's done, it's done, it's done in Christ. And everything we do is just an overflow what's already been done, what's already been accomplished. And I love that we have ahead of us in this study just the most beautiful picture of the cross of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has wrought ahead of us. And I pray that you prepare our hearts for it. And I pray that as we continue in this story this week and we look at 
um, our great warrior God coming through for his people amidst their just profound doubt that he would, but he did because you promised you would. And that reminder that it has really very little to do with our faith. This is everything to do with your faithfulness. And so God, just drive these messages home. They're so very relevant to where we are. And we just thank you in advance for what you're going to continue to teach us and do in us and through us as we study your word. We love you so very much in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <laughs> you're welcome. It is a joy. <laughs>